A massive welcome to everyone uh, here tonight. If you snuck in late or in uh, case you forgot, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Beyond Church. And you're joining us uh, in part two of a brand new series that we're doing. And we run out of titles for it, so we just called it Brand New. And last week, if you were with us or if you weren't, I'm going to try and catch you up as best as I can. But I would encourage you, uh, if you missed part one, jump onto our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash beyondchurchau, or in case you're just using uh, your smartphone, just type in Beyond Church, and you'll find the link to our SoundCloud, and you'll be able to listen to part one. Uh, But in part one, we looked at this idea that across religions, across faiths, not just in our modern uh, day culture, but as far back as the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, Uh, the Romans, there has been this idea of of what we classified the temple model, this temple model way of thinking. And the temple model is characterized by four things. A sacred place, so there's always got to be a sacred place, whether that's the grave of a holy person or, or whether it's a building that's constructed or whether it's a temple that you go into and it's a holy place. And then within the holy place is a holy text whether that's an oracle or whether it's a person who heard a word from, uh, from a god. And then there's always, within the sacred place, reading the sacred, uh, sorry, within the sacred places, reading the sacred text, are always sacred men. It's always men. Don't ask me why, but for whatever reason, it's always men. And then they have sincere followers. Now, sincere is probably being a little bit too kind, but we thought we'd give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, superstitious might be a good word to use. Uh, scared might be a good word to use. And the reason that the followers of the temple model are scared and are superstitious is because when they've got an issue with God, they go to the sacred man. And the sacred man reads the sacred text and tells them what they have to do to appease God or what they have to do to make their way back to God. And if if the follower challenges the person in this model, well, you can't challenge me because I'm a sacred man, I've got a sacred text, and I work in a sacred place. And we looked at the idea that when Jesus came... When he stepped onto the pages of history, he actually came to start something brand new. When Jesus walks onto the pages of history, he starts a new covenant. In other words, a new way that people would relate to God. A completely new way that God would relate to people. He starts a new command. He said, you know, a lot of your temple religions, a lot of the ways that you think about things, they have lots and lots of commands. Jesus goes, I'm going to give you a new one and I'm going to give you one and it's going to be able to influence all the other ones. And this one command, with this one command, Jesus starts a new ethic. Jesus says, with this one command, this command, if you apply it to your life, will give you a brand new ethic that should filter through into the way you think and the way you act and the way you live your life. And then we looked at the idea that Jesus actually started a brand new movement. If you've ever heard the word church, chances are when the word church comes to mind, you have an idea and you have a concept and the word church when it was, uh, is a German word that was smuggled into our English Bible and it means a building, a place. When the New Testament was originally written, it was written in Greek and the Greek word that was inserted there for church was ekklesia. And it didn't mean a sacred place, it meant a community of people. It meant a group of people and it, and it meant that the, uh, whenever in history you would felt that you're on a sacred place, Whenever in history you went to a, a sacred place that had a sacred text, what Jesus starts when he makes this new movement with his ecclesia, he says, the person to your left and the person to your right will always be more sacred than the ground you're standing on. And this new, brand new model and this brand new idea that Jesus started challenged the temple model. Because the temple model of thinking was built around 
an idea that only the elite people could meet. Only the people who had money, only the people who could afford to pay and make themselves right with God had the temple model available to them. Jesus came onto the pages of history and he raised the bar so high that no one could meet the standard. He leveled the playing field for all of us. And then Jesus goes one step further and with this new ecclesia, this new movement, Jesus says, no longer is the temple model bound to a nation. No longer is it bound to a nation, but my movement is for all the world. My movement is for all people, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your colour. It is for everyone at all places, at all times, and in all spaces throughout history. And chances are that if you push back against the church, if you... You know, if, if there's a reason that you don't go to church, and trust me, if I was in your shoes, if I'd heard your story, if, if I'd seen how the way the church had treated you, I would probably not want to have anything to do with them at all as well. But chances are that the reason that you push back against the church is, if you do, is not because of the brand new movement Jesus started. It's because the church took what was new and then smuggled something old back into it over time. And tonight, I want to change tracks for just a second. As we move into part two, I want to change tracks for just a second. If you're a little confused, then bear with me. We'll get there in the end. But I'm going to do something that's going to really divide the audience here because I'm going to admit that I'm an iPhone user. And I am just like, I'm in love with my iPhone. Not only do I have an iPhone, I have a, I have a uh, what are these called, iPads? And I have a MacBook. Like, and I know that's going to divide some people because, you know, you've got the Samsung people and the, the iPod people and everyone's got their group. But just trust me, uh, bear with me because I love my iPhone. And when I got this iPhone, it's old now, but when I got it, it was brand new. And when I got it originally, you know, I got this case with it. And this case was like one of the most expensive cases that I ever bought. And, and it has this like, you can't really see, but it has this polymer inside that's supposed to design that, you know, if, if, if you drop it, the kinetic energy transfers through it. And so it absorbs, uh, it absorbs the hit and the, the screen won't shatter. When I first got my iPhone, I had one of those special protective coatings over the screen because it was brand new, you know. This, this phone wasn't like any other phone I'd ever had. I was going to treat this phone right. And then over time, I just realized how bad that sounded. And then over time, I did, uh, I did some silly things. I took my phone to the beach. I got, you know, I got adventurous. I took it to the beach and it got scratched all over the back. And then I noticed after a while that inside the case, sand had got in and it started to really deteriorate and really kind of scratch away all the newness off my phone. And then after a while, I noticed that my battery stopped working super well. And within two hours of getting up, you know, my battery would be down to 30%. And then it got to the point where, I don't know if you've ever experienced this or if it's just me, but my charger, you know, I'd plug it in and I'd have to wiggle it to try and get it to connect. And then you, I sit on the side of the bed at night, wiggling the charger, and then trying to get the books and cram it so it's in just the right space so that it connects. And then you do the Houdini thing where you're just like, just like hoping that like, I don't know what this does, but everyone does it when you've got it finally plugged in. Oh, back away slowly. Don't bump it. Don't do anything. And eventually just got to the part where it wasn't charging. Like I'd sit there for half an hour. I couldn't. So I took it into Apple. And of course, you know, it was just past its warranty. I said, what's wrong with my phone? They said, well, one of the copper wires is, is missing. And so you won't ever be able to charge it again. It's pretty much useless. There's nothing we can really do to fix it. And this phone that was once brand new is really just a piece of rubbish now. It's absolutely useless. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Maybe not with a phone, but maybe you've done it with a car. And you've got a brand new car. And this car is unlike any other car you've had before. It's got new car smell. 
Maybe it's the first car you've ever owned and, and you take really good care of this car. You clean it, you wash it, you vacuum the insides and then for, you know, for the first three to six months, that's what happens. But then all of a sudden, it gets cold outside. I don't want to go outside and wash my car, it's cold. All of a sudden, your back seat turns into your, like, your second wardrobe. And then when you have people in your car, you just move the wardrobe from the back seat to the boot after a while. And maybe, and then all of a sudden, once, what, what was once brand new is not so much brand new anymore. And maybe you've seen this in your jobs and in your relationships. You're in a job that isn't working or you're in a relationship that isn't working. In your mind, what you think is, if I just had a new job, if I had a new relationship, this would solve all my problems. If I could just get away from this horrible boss, if I could get away from this he said, she said, then I, I could find something brand new. That would solve everything. So you got a new job. You got a new relationship. And at first, it was really, really good. But then after a while, all of a sudden, the patterns that you had in your old job started to creep in. That he said, she said started to surface in this new relationship. And the reason it starts to surface is not because you've brought something new into that relationship. It's because you've smuggled your old habits that you developed at your last job, that the old habits you developed in your last relationship, and you've brought them into something brand new. All you have to do is look at our New Year's resolutions to see. It's the new year, new me. I'm going to start something brand new. No one goes to the gym for the first like month or two months and then goes, oh, I got something new fitness-wise to do. No, you went back to the old you of not working out. You know, oh, I'm going to eat healthy. Oh, I went from like just healthy foods to superfoods, whatever they are. No, you went back to junk food. You smuggled the old into the new. And what we're looking at tonight, and what, what I want to unpack tonight is over time, the church has smuggled so many old things in that it's diluted this brand new thing that Jesus started. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here, my aim tonight is not to convince you to be a follower of Jesus. No one can do that. My aim isn't even to try to get you to come back next week, although part three and part four is going to be pretty hectic. In fact, they're going to be so hectic that you might not even want to come back for part five. We might not even have a church by that point. Um, But my aim tonight is to just peel back all the layers so you can see the main thing. If you could see the main thing, if you could see the brand new thing that Jesus started 2,000 years ago, what would be the main thing that the followers of Jesus would be characterized around? So tonight I want to do that. And to do that, I want to look particularly at a guy called Saul. And uh, Saul steps onto the pages of history as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus steps on uh, and and we, we get our first sight of him uh, in history, and he actually is going out and killing the church. And in fact, Paul would have succeeded in destroying the church if he hadn't become a follower of Jesus. Paul was one of those people that was type A personality. If he had a goal, if he had a mission, he had to get the job done. And Paul had an experience with Jesus while he was traveling on a road to a town called Damascus. And it changed his world and it rocked his world that he became, he went from the most, from a Christian killer, from a persecutor of the people who followed Jesus to He actually went and began starting churches. In fact, he traveled all around the Mediterranean Rim, starting these new ecclesias, these new Jesus movements. And Paul, uh, when he was Saul, was a Jew. And so Paul grew up in this temple model kind of thinking. 
And then he understood what the difference between the temple model and the new movement that Jesus had started was. But the thing was, is that as Paul was going around planting all these churches, as Paul was traveling through the Mediterranean, there was a group of people that would follow behind him. And this group of people would follow behind him and they would spend time in the churches that Paul hung out with. And they, what they would do is they would bring this temple model thinking back into this brand new Jesus movement that Paul was trying to start and trying to uh, get traction. And this group that we're going to look at tonight, they were the Judaizers, what's called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, um, for those of you uh, who are not sure, we'll get you up to speed, they were Jewish Christians. So they were followers of Jesus, but they'd b- been brought up in this Jewish way of thinking, who believed Gentiles, so Gentiles was anyone who wasn't a Jew, must convert to Judaism before they could join the Jesus movement. So Judaizers, Jewish Christians, uh, who said that Gentiles must join, uh, become Jewish before they could join the Jesus movement. And if you're a man, that meant a little bit of surgery, because you had to be circumcised. Now, circumcision is... We'll just leave that, okay? <clears throat> I'm glad you laughed, because that was almost going to go in the mode of dead jokes out there. But, but Paul, Paul hears about this, because Paul is still in contact, and he's still chatting to the church that he started. And Paul hears that these Judaizers have come into one of the churches that he started in Galatia. And he knows that this kind of thinking, this temple model thinking, that when you mix it with Christianity, it's not going to go well. And so Paul becomes, and this is not a word, I'm not smart enough to come up with this word, but Paul becomes apoplectic. And the reason I wanted to use that word is because it sounds as uh, exactly what I think Paul would have been feeling. Paul was apoplectic, he was furious, he was angry at this temple model thinking that had come back into this brand new church in Galatia. And so Paul writes a letter to the church at Galatia, to the followers of Jesus, to address some of the things that these Judaizers had been teaching them. And we pick this up in Galatians 5, verse 1. Uh, It'll come up on the screen, but if you want to get your Bibles out or get the YouVersion Bible app downloaded, you can follow along with us. But in Galatians 5, 1, Paul is writing to the church to correct the old things that have come into the new movement. And he says this, For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. What Paul's saying is when Jesus died on the cross, He didn't require anything of you. He set you free for freedom's sake. Not free to obey laws, not free to get circumcised, not free to become Jewish and then follow me. No, he set you free for freedom's sake. In fact, Paul would probably go as far as saying to the church at Galatia, if your version of Christianity doesn't make you free, you're doing it wrong. If your understanding of Christianity doesn't make you feel free, you're doing it wrong. Because Christianity following Jesus should make you feel free. And he goes on, he says, stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Because remember Paul's, what Paul's trying to get at with these Judea, addressing this issue, he goes, once people obeyed that temple model, once people used to have to come to God and offer a sacrifice, once people used to have to make God appeased by something that they did, Paul goes, don't go back to that way of thinking. Don't go back and burden yourself with that again because Jesus came to make you free. And when you go back to trying to make yourself acceptable to God, you're taking on a burden that you don't have to take on because it's already been taken for you. And he says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. And this is just how serious Paul is addressing these people. Jesus won't be of any value 
to you if you keep trying to earn your way back to him. Because we know, and Paul knew, that if you mix a little bit of temple model with a little bit of Jesus model, you end up with 95% temple model and 5% Jesus. And you will constantly be trying to earn your way back to God, and it will become so law-based, so rule-based, that in the end, Jesus' death will actually be of no use to you at all. Because you're going to keep trying to do everything you can to earn your way back into God's grace. He says, again, I declare... To every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obligated to obey the whole law. So even if you're not a church person, chances are maybe you've heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, the Jewish people, they were so obsessed with obeying the Ten Commandments, they didn't want to break the Ten. So what they did was, they thought it was a good idea to add another 600 outside of the Ten so they wouldn't break the Ten on the inside. And so they had all these layers that they would have to work through. So if they kind of broke one or sort of one, at least they weren't breaking the really important Ten. And Paul says... If you want to do one thing to earn your way back to God, if you want to do, go down this circumcision track, if you want to start to earn your way back in, then you're going to need to obey all 600. Because Jesus came to set you free. Jesus didn't come so you could just obey a little bit. You're going to have to, if you want to go down that path, you're going to have to go down that path the entire way that it leads. And then he says this, this next verse really shows just how apoplectic Paul was getting. And it's kind of confronting. It says, You who are trying to be justified by the law. In other ways, if you're trying to obey these commands to make yourself right to God, you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, he's saying to the followers of Jesus, if you think that you have to earn your way, if you think you have to do these good works to make yourself acceptable to God, you have actually fallen away from grace. Imagine you got a $1,000 gift card to your favorite store. And if your favorite store doesn't, have one th- doesn't do gift cards, if you don't shop at those kinds of places, then this store loves you so much that they were willing to make an exception for you because you are such a valued customer. And your friend or someone you know gave you a $1,000 gift card to this place. And you said, I, I appreciate the gesture. It's so nice, but here, let me-, let me pay you $800 for this gift card. And they said, no, no, I can't do that. That's a gift card. You said, okay, well, well what I'll do is I'll just pay you two or 300 for it. I said, no, 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 it's it's a gift. And then you keep the back and forth going. And eventually you get it down to you say, okay, how about this? How about I give you $5 for this $1,000 gift card? $5 for this $1,000 gift card. And the person goes, that's pretty reasonable. I mean, if you want to give me something, I guess $5 is acceptable. I'll take the $5. The second that you hand the $5 over, it's no longer a gift card. It's a discount card. Sure, it's a great discount. But it's still a discount card, nonetheless. And Paul writes this to these people in Galatia is because he's saying the hallmark of the Jesus movement, the thing that the Jesus movement is known for is grace. And the second you start trying to earn grace, you've lost it. Because by definition, grace is something you cannot earn, something you do not deserve, and something that that no matter how hard you try, you'll never be able to obtain because it's freely given. And if you try to earn your way, you're taking a gift card and you're turning it into a discount card. Paul goes on, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Remember how he said that Paul was a a Pharisee? He was a Jewish Pharisee? The Pharisees, they, they were known for their obedience to the law. In fact, people used to call Paul, and Paul refers to himself as the Pharisee of Pharisees. 
And Paul is saying here, he's drawing this dichotomy between the gift card and the discount card. He said, if anyone, if anyone was first in line to, be, to knock on heaven's door because of good works, it'd be me. If anyone was in the right position to earn their way back to God, it was me. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the next in line to be the teacher of all the Jewish men that were coming up. I knew what it meant to obey the law. I am circumcised and I'm telling you it has no value to me. Just like obeying the law has no value because in Jesus, he doesn't make distinctions. He doesn't look at your good works and base you on that. He bases it on the grace that he's given. And the next thing that Paul says, this is what unchurched people, if you've push back against church if you don't go to church chances are you've pushed back because church people have missed this only thing and maybe if you've been at church for a long time you've read this and you've glazed over it because maybe for you you didn't think it was important or you just kind of thought you knew it but this is what paul says the only thing that counts i'll say it again the only thing that counts the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love If you're a follower of Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And if you've ever resisted the church, if you've ever pushed back against the church, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to bet it's not because followers of Jesus loved you too much. It's not because followers of Jesus had, had uh, had a loyalty to Jesus and so they were willing to love you and do whatever it needed to make sure that you knew that you were loved. Chances are, if you've resisted the church in any way, it's because the church has leveraged at one point or another something other than love. And maybe if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, you're kind of like pushing back against that because you're like, well, hang on a minute, Chris. What, what, about my, what about my personal relationship with Jesus? You know, is, isn't that important? I'd say absolutely it is, but your relationship with your heavenly Father is not going to drag you away from faith expressing itself through love. In fact, For some of you who are followers of Jesus, your relationship with Jesus might be characterized by constantly looking over your shoulder. Oh God, are we okay? Jesus, am I doing all right? Yeah, have I done enough this week? Look, look, I know I didn't read my Bible that much. I know I didn't pray that much. I know I probably should have helped out. And you have this fear mentality in your head of Jesus. You have this idea that Jesus, you know, if you don't do something right, that God's going to look down on you and God's going to be... I want to tell you something tonight, if that's you, if, that is, if you're a follower of Jesus and your relationship with Jesus is characterized by that kind of thinking, if someone is willing to come to earth and die for you, they are for you. If the creator of the universe will step down off his throne, take human form, be mocked and hung on a cross for you, regardless of if you're the only person in, uh, who ever lived and they would still do it, if they are willing to die for you, they are for you. Jesus is for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is for you. So stop looking up to check if you're right with God and start looking around. Because Jesus is going, I am for you. I have died for you. My grace is enough. You have always won freedom. Start looking around. And then Paul wraps this letter up by addressing the agitators. He says, as for those agitators, you know, the people who are the Judaizers trying to pull them away. He says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. In other words, if they want to start cutting, they may as well cut the whole thing off. I'm telling you, this is in the Bible. Even if you don't go to church, you should just read the Bible because it says stuff like this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. 
But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. If you have this idea that, you know, well, well, if I'm free, doesn't that mean I, I get to do whatever I want? No, no, no. Paul's saying, no, no. Love should be the thing that informs your freedom. Love should be the one thing that informs the rest of the things. And then he wraps up with this. He says the entire law, the entire law, all those 600 commands that the Jewish people used to follow, all of it is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others, the rest is detail. Love God, love others, the rest is detail. And maybe for some of you, you hear this and you're like, okay, I, I get that, I get that. But what does that look like in my life? What does that look like around my dinner table? What does that look like when I've just come home from a long day at work and you know, the kids are crying or you know, we're having that same argument that we always have? What does that look like in my workplace? Well, my boss is at it or I've just got that disgruntled employee. What does that look like in my community? What does that look like in the people I interact with, the person who I get my morning cup of coffee off? What does that look like in my life? Well, we have this thing at Beyond, it's called Full Monday, because we believe whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're not, uh, if you come to church, you should get something out of it. It should be helpful, it should be beneficial. So this is our Full Monday. The way this looks in your life, this idea of faith expressing itself in love, ask this question, what does love require of me? In the context that you're in, in the situation that you're, that you're faced, what does love require of me? And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, sounds like we've got a lot of freedom in that. Sounds like, you know, there's not a whole heap of stuff going on. Chris, could you give me like a 12-step program to finish it? Because I don't deal well with freedom. I need structure. If that's you, then you are feeling the exact same feelings that the first followers of Jesus felt. You are feeling the, the same emotions that the very first followers of Jesus felt. Because in a culture that was defined by how they lived, Jesus tells them, no, 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 I want you to be defined by how you love. Where it was all about, you know, oh, have we, have we done this in our day? Have we, have we sorted this grain and have we sorted this grain? And when it was all focused on how they live, Jesus goes, no, no, redefine it. Figure it out by how you love. Be defined by how you love. Because in our culture, if we're honest, particularly for followers of Jesus, we're really good at knowing what to do. We're really, really good at knowing what we should do but we're not really good at doing what we know we should do. So if this question says, oh, you know, isn't that too easy? Isn't that, Chris, isn't that too easy for me to ask what does love require of me? Just remember that Jesus asked this question. And asking this question led Jesus to a cross where he hung and he bled for the sins of the universe. If this is challenging you, it's because you've been paying attention. And as we close, what I want to do, just for, just for one second, is just get you to imagine. I know it might be a little bit odd, but just imagine if, if just the followers of Jesus, you know, if you're not a Christian, I don't expect you to faith expressing itself in love. I get that, I get that you're, not, you're not even sure if you want to follow Jesus. You don't even know if you want to come to church next week. I get that. But could you just imagine for the Christians what it would look like if for one month, every single Christian in our city define themselves by faith expressing itself through love? 
What would it look like if every single Christian in our city said, what does love require of me for one month and then acted upon it? Not just knew what they should do, but actually followed through on what they should do. And that's challenging. But how would our city be different? How would your sphere of influence be different if you asked this question, what does love require of me? What, what would our world look like just for one month if every single follower of Jesus across the world said, I'm going to ask, what does love require of me? I'm going to stop looking up and asking, God, are we good? Because I get it, Jesus died for me, he's for me. But I'm going to let, uh, characterize myself by faith expressing itself in love. And I'm not saying this is easy, but this is what we need to begin to move from knowing to doing. Trust me, because asking what does love require of me, sometimes it happens in situations when you don't want it to happen. Sometimes it happens on a Friday night when it's six o'clock at night and you've just come home from a ride and you go for a ride every Friday afternoon to marinate on your messages. And you come up with this, what does love require of me? I think that's a good one to put in the end. And it's freezing cold and you forgot your arm warmers and you forgot your leg warmers and yes, you're wearing the lycra and it is freezing cold and you are sitting there and you're thinking, I've got this great word, what does love require of me? And you drive right past the people who are standing on the side of the road. And you think, oh, I've got to turn around and do this. I've got to go back and I've got to see if they're okay. Because so many of us know what we should do, but we don't do what we know we should do. So this week, we have the opportunity to begin to change what people think of when they hear the word church. We have the opportunity to go back to this brand new thing that Jesus started. We can stop smuggling the old in and we can be known for this brand new movement that Jesus started by focusing on the main thing. But it starts by asking, what does love require of me? And then what do I do in response to that question? We're going to pray right now and I'm going to uh, invite the band to come back up. Father, we just pray that we would be characterized as a community, that as followers of Jesus, we would be characterized not by what we know, but by how we love. And that's a scary concept. That's hard to think of. There's a lot of freedom there, Lord. But we want to be known for the main thing. Well, we don't want to be a community who smuggles the old into the new. Lord, help us to redefine, even if it's just in our region, what it means Uh, what the word church means. That when people look in on this place, they would go, you know, I know those guys are a church, but they are defined and they are characterized by how they love. The main thing for them is faith expressing itself in love. And Heavenly Father, I want to pray for people here tonight who have had a bad church experience. Or maybe, whether it's through the media, or maybe they've never even gone to church, or maybe it was for for someone uh, in a community that leveraged something else instead of love, whether it was power, whether it was self-righteousness, whether it was law. Lord, I pray that in the midst of all of this, that the way that the church has treated them through all of this, that they wouldn't miss Jesus. They wouldn't miss the fact that Jesus came to start something brand new. The things that the church resists about, the people that they resist about the church are probably the things that the church should resist about themselves. Help them to understand this idea that Jesus came to start something brand new, that Jesus came for faith, expressing itself in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.